1: Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and cultural strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. My co-host is Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. On today's special episode of Inclusive Collective, the best of our conversations about inclusion in media. For those of you that know us and have listened to the show, you know that Nadia and I love to weigh in on the media. And how and why we think it is so important to our understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion broadly, and how that in turn shapes our workplaces. Today, we feature our conversations with Asad Butt, founder of Refillion Media, with media and tech entrepreneur Mika Cooper Edwards of Solal Space, and with Sadia Khan, producer and host of the Immigrantly and Invisible Hate podcast. We start with our main man, Asad Butt. Most of you know Asad as the man with a keen eye for talent, having discovered and elevated two supernovas named. Nadia, and Rob on the Inclusive Collective Podcast. We know he nailed that decision. This will probably be the first line on his obituary, I'm certain. That's what I'm predicting for him. Before that, though, Asid worked in broadcast television, helping to launch Bridges TV, the first lifestyle network aimed at Muslim Americans, serving as its first news director. Assad chatted about that experience and how it has influenced his endeavors, including the launch of Philion Media, and how his vision of a second wave of Muslim creativity in broadcast media is being fulfilled by some of the work that Rafillion is doing.
0: In 2004, you said that you worked at the first founded Muslim television company, Bridges TV. Can you tell us a little bit more about like why you went into that and what was your experience there? Because um, it sounds very similar to what you're hoping to accomplish today, like what went wrong kind of in that that industry. Yeah, so
2: in in 2004, I helped launch the first American Muslim lifestyle network called Bridges TV, and the goal was to basically be like – Uh, BET is for the African-American community. Uh, It was the goal is to create a network like that for American Muslims. And it was on cable. And you got to remember 2004, this is pre-YouTube. This is pre-videos on the internet. So the only really way to reach a mass audience like that was through getting on a cable package. And so uh, Bridges TV was launched and I think it was technically launched in 2005. I can't can't remember. But we we launched on, you know, I think it was the Verizon network in – a couple different cities across uh, across the country, and the goal was to really showcase news and movies and TV shows and all sorts of content focused on the American Muslim community, and it failed miserably. <laughs> um, and part of it was it wasn't able to find that wide audience uh, because the Muslim American. Uh, community is is across the country right we're not th- there are pockets of of muslim americans in detroit and new york and elsewhere but you know as a whole you know if you were if it was it was hard to to tar- to target american muslims directly mm. through cable you know because you have to be on every single cable package Sure. the second was you needed a lot of money to produce really good content mm-hmm. and we just didn't have it things have changed quite a bit in the 15 years since then you know with the advent of streaming podcasting youtubing you name it you can reach your audience a lot more directly and you know you don't have to have expensive productions in order to, to generate revenue and so so you know those are the lessons that i learned from from bridges tv just like we don't need to go big right now in order to generate revenue and to dra- create content that our audience needs
1: in that venture where there, you know, I'm thinking about 2004, still 9-11, September 11th, 2001, still oh, yeah. totally. very recent in people's minds at that point. And then we're, you know, we're conducting a war, uh, multiple wars, right? In Afghanistan and Iraq at that point, were there biases against that project at that time? And then just tell me, what does it look like? Uh, what does the landscape look like now?
2: yeah you know it's I mean, the fact that it launched in that time period is actually pretty remarkable, you know, and I think it was it was the the previous generation of people like you at these organizations that realized that that they needed to diversify their content mm. that 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 they were offering on their packages and and this was the right way to do it. I think also we were coming off the heels of b e t being a billion dollar uh business. Mm. And so people realized there might be some money in niche. and um, around the same time the other type of niche um, network that launched was Logo targeting the gay and lesbian community which ended up taking off and, and blowing up you know it was, it was great compared to Bridges TV and so I think they were a lot better funded and, and had better management and so Lifetime
1: Network yeah, I you think, know right? Oh yeah Lifetime yeah 60 year old white women you know like oh my god all
0: of my friends love the Lifetime movies <laughs>
1: yeah
2: totally totally so you know i think that you know what i think the biggest difference as i kind of alluded to before now is that like you know you can create content to just put it online i mean there still is a big challenge i think you know from two, say 2005 to 2017 there's still a bunch of challenge of getting network television or cable television to do content specifically for american muslims there are pockets of movies and tv shows and other content that came out what we've seen in the last. I would say three to five years is again this reemergence. I kind of describe it as like a second wave of Muslim creativity uh, post 9 11, where we're really seeing things like Rami. We saw the show called wow. Mo that just mm-hmm. came out last week. So good. Um, you know, our, our network and, and a bunch of other content specifically targeting American Muslims because the business model now works, you know, for lack of a better, better sure. phrase.
0: You know, it's so interesting too. Like, how do you, um, there's Al Jazeera, there's like young Turks, which are, I know they're not specifically Muslim geared, but they're, they're news. Um, They're, you know, journalism organizations, media journal, uh, media organizations. How do you see yourself kind of being different? I I know storytelling is a major component of um, your media, you know, production company. What are some of the other ways that you're different than, The Al Jazeera or the Young Turks. Yeah. I'm hoping that our,
2: honestly, our biggest differentiator is. uh,
0: Rob. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh,
2: It is Rob. Um, uh, uh, Is uh, quantity as, uh, uh, in addition to quality. You know, I think that we we were just talking about Lifetime. You know, talk to me about how many Christmas movies come out every year. You know, Mm. 60, Mm -hmm. 70, right? Like, how many Eid movies do you know of? I know yeah. of one I mean, short film, right? And so, okay. like, even if you were, even if Rafaleon was just to focus on creating five Christmas movies over the next decade and and continuing that trend, like, you know, there's money to be made in the in them hills, as they say, right? And so, and then the second part of that is that there is this entire generation of Muslim creatives that are just chomping at the bit to express themselves, right? And so, it's really uh it's it's almost like venture investing in some way shape or form you throw enough investment money behind some of these projects one of them is going to blow up and be the next you know my big fat greek wedding or you know Mm. whatever it may be right serial podcast and it just we just haven't had to go back to another sports analogy as many swings at the plate as other communities have had Mm. do do you understand that reference
0: i do sports go sports
1: (laughs) go sports (laughs) Yeah, and I think we've hit a, touched upon it a couple of times here, and I think that big fat Greek wedding, analogy is good. So I, I always wonder about. I think about my childhood, uh, you know, many many years ago, but there was <laughs> there, there was, there was some ubiquitousness in the media, but that created some shared experiences as well. And so we think about like, BET, BET, you know, because of the rise of hip hop, it started to get. Traction with white audiences as well. Yeah, yours truly watching video soul like after school, right? And video soul. <laughs> and, and, and I love my, that image. My main man, I want I would Simpson, love to right?
0: picture you dancing. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's yeah, amazing. But, so,
1: is, so I just is that what you you know? So there's tar- You know, we we're super ultra targeted with our media now, and so even the two uh, shows that you reference, i have certainly never heard of, and I think that we we don't have those shared experiences. for at all, and so do you look for to draw in a, a broader audience as well? I mean, what is the and what are your thoughts on that? That fragmentation of media as it relates to yeah. like a healthy environment and shared experiences?
2: Yeah, no, I, hundred percent. I mean, I think that I, I think as I look at at projects and what we greenlight, I think there, there's got to be a mix of kind of niche and wider, you know, audiences. I think that, you know, the wider audience might not necessarily mean the greater white or non-muslim american audience it could mean mm-hmm. the egyptian audience or the pakistani sure. audience or you know the international audience that are, that is muslim right and i think that's that's something that i, w- I would like for a, for our content to, to to reach as well because you know i think it's interesting
1: let's take a short break and we'll be back with more highlights and inclusive media with mika cooper edwards of Saleel space Welcome back. Next up in today's special episode on inclusive media, we hear from Mika Cooper Edwards, founder and CEO of Soleil Space, a transcultural media company specializing in film and television production, elevating stories and creators of the global south diasporas of Asia, Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America, and the Middle East. Here Mika speaks about how she started as a producer and how her experiences and the struggles she saw for filmmakers from the global south contributed to her founding Soleil Space and how her previous experience in marketing at Nike differs from leading her own company, and how she thinks about connecting all the dots as she continues to grow.
3: A director that I was like, you know, using as one of the subjects of my pieces in my master's program was like, you will be an excellent producer. And I was like, okay, explain to me exactly what a producer <laughs> What is has. that? Yeah, you <laughs> know, because, you know, you see yeah, all these credits and things, nice. the line producer and field producer and EP. And, you know, you see all these things and the layman right. doesn't right. really know the difference. So he yeah, had to explain that to me. And that's how I started producing was on his film, mm. right? Oh, wow. And so now fast forward to answer your question, looking back, is that I always had that innate feeling of, especially being an immigrant in the U.S., And having to explain myself so much or, you know, being dismissed as someone from a country that's not quite important, you know, you guys, you guys are on the beat somewhere swinging on trees, you know what I mean? Like all these stereotypes and perceptions that you live with and that translate into every aspect of our lives. And so when I was... And even what's
0: depicted on TV and movies, right? Correct.
3: Correct or not depicted at all because like, you know, as a member of the black diaspora, and I think every ethnic diaspora deals with this, where there's a dominant, even within the underrepresentation, then there are these token representatives of a whole diaspora, which comprises of so many different, you know, um, nuances and intersectionalities and subcultures, right? And so for us, it's the African-American archetype. So I don't even hear myself on screen. That person looks like me, but they don't Someone like me. They didn't grow up like me. They seen snow. I never saw snow until I was 18, right? Like things like that, right? So right. when I started producing, mm-hmm. I started doing independent um, projects of my own, but I also was working for production companies. I realized that there was definitely no appetite to tell stories and invest mm. at a certain level in filmmakers from you know backgrounds of color around the world particularly outside the U.S. and even inside the U.S. there wasn't an understanding of why our stories would be viable commercially why they were important to tell even when they chose to tell them there was a lack of understanding of how they needed to be told so that they would remain authentic. And so between doing my own independent projects, struggling to raise financing for those projects or even trying to get, you know, projects from filmmakers who would approach us to, like, get their films, you know, and, and TV series like Greenlit, these hoops that we had to run through, The pains that we had to go through, I would say even abuses that we experienced in the industry, that was like where the experience came from that breathed into soil, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, realizing that it needed to be a systemic approach to it, that production alone Mm -hmm. couldn't solve it, um, and that we needed to create an ecosystem that was fairly independent of Hollywood, and we just started laying the foundations for those. Um, So in 2019 was when I decided to kind of make the leap to go from just being an independent project-by-project producer Mm -hmm. to building a production company. But then going through those rigors, we also realized that we needed to be more than a production company, that the people that really control the industry are the ones that control financing and distribution, and mm. so how do you kind of create that independent ecosystem?
1: I love that, Mika, and so thanks for walking us through that. So you worked in marketing and big productions, um, and then now you're working to build your own tech media company, and so I'm just wondering about the differences between how do you think about diversity and, and you know from different perspectives of storytelling, so you know telling stories, and then also building a company and my and and. Just any any thoughts on those on the differences between the two, or or just your experiences in, in those different areas?
3: I guess when I was in the corporate marketing world, you would have looked at the diversity more from a very personal point of view. Now we were in a very—I'll speak to the Nike experience specifically, right? Because that was a longer stint mm-hmm. and very foundational for me as a marketer right? It was a very weird juxtaposition because here I am working on Nike basketball products where the athletes are black Mm -hmm. primarily. The consumers are primarily black, but I'm living in Oregon, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a black Trinidadian woman, young, living in Oregon. And most of my coworkers are white, Mm -hmm. right? So there was a strange dilemma that you were always grappling with and because you're not sitting you know above everything looking at it from a a very long-term organizational development perspective but you innately feel this this conflict right and then you add the layer of my existence as not being American in a very American or Western I should say american and european dominated organization as well Mm -hmm. and that's where most of the dollars even went from a marketing perspective or or you know merchandising and and all of that so the emerging markets i ended up being very much representing a lot of the international regions right i always lean i always ended up on the international side of the businesses Mm -hmm. and so having to then have advocate for why Japan needed their own Air Jordan style that was worth investing in. Sure. Why Manu mobley from Argentina was uh, an athlete that we should be innovating at a certain level, right? With three championships at a time, you know? Like, why all these stories were just as rich and just as important and worth investing in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, why the Jordan brand needed to dimensionalize and be, you know, global because growing up in Trinidad, I was up late at night watching him play. Mm -hmm. What was the story of me watching him play from a Caribbean perspective, right? So all of these things were very much from the lens of my role and what were the constraints, right, that were on my ability to bring my true experience, my true self, To a world that actually at the end point were people just like me, but what was in the middle was like a lot of barriers. Mm -hmm. Then coming now to where we are now, I have the benefit of, because I am like empowered to build the organization, I can look at the inside out approach and all the dots have to connect. So from who we hire if you look at my team, we look at like, we look like an old Benetton commercial, you know, <laughs> and everybody's all over the world. And sometimes that means investing in people before they have a certain level of experience. But you see the potential, you know, they're bringing a certain cultural perspective that is really important to be represented. I love that. Then the filmmakers, oh. right, that we work with and the platform that we're building and The board, right, that we that we put together, sure. um, all of that then has to connect. And so I look at it very holistically. I look at it in terms of walk the talk, and it has to be inside out because if if it's not, it's going to affect the business at the end of the day, right? There's going to be that gap at some parts of that. That food chain, I guess, if you want to call it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That weak link is going to show, it's going to expose at some point or the other. So I'm trying to take the approach of making sure that our mission is reflected in every aspect, every layer, externally, internally of the organization. And then that will emanate out through the business that we do.
1: That was Mika Cooper-Edwards of Soil Space. And if you love film, Be sure to check out the Salil Space streaming platform. They have hundreds, maybe thousands of films from around the world that you would otherwise not be able to see. It's a really cool product and platform. I'm a big fan. Check it out. Finally, this past season, we were joined by activist and podcaster Sajid Khan. Sajid is the host of the award-winning podcast Immigrantly and the co-host of the Invisible Hate podcast, which will probably also win a lot of awards. Sadia started her Immigrantly podcast in 2020 and has interviewed hundreds of guests on their American experiences. Here, Sadia talks about some of her observations on how Americans perceive immigrants and how the media fails to portray the complexity of immigrant identities and why she feels microaggressions are a form of hate crime. We start with a question on Sadia's learnings from doing the Immigrantly show. A lot of folks that you've talked to on that show over the last few years and you've heard a variety of stories. If you, if you zoom out, what are some of the learnings that you've had from doing that show? What are the broader themes that have emerged or things that you've learned and the things that as you, you know, people tell you, ask you, what you know, what are your biggest takeaways from doing the show over the last few years? What, what are those takeaways for you?
4: So first, I don't interview immigrants only. I interview mm. kids of immigrants, so second gen. I also interview people who have some connection to immigrant identity and I interview people of color because for me, to your point, Rob, the biggest takeaway is you cannot talk about immigrant identity and immigrant experiences in America if you don't intertwine them with conversations around race and identity and how America views people who are not part of the dominant Mm. population. So that's one thing, right? I feel like we cannot look at immigrant identity or immigrant experiences in silos. That's one. The other thing that I've learned is that for the longest time, and especially in mainstream Mm. media, immigrants are portrayed as a monolith group, right? All immigrants have same experiences. And sometimes while there is focus on trauma that immigrants go through, There is less focus on privileges that a lot of immigrants have or accrue to certain immigrants. So everybody's Mm -hmm. journey is different. When I came to the U.S., I consider myself as a privileged immigrant because I came here for college. I had means to apply and get visa and get a ticket from Pakistan to the U.S. to travel. Not all immigrants can afford those luxuries, right? So first we have to parse out what immigrant identity means, what kind of journeys different immigrants embark on, from undocumented immigrants to working class immigrants to professional immigrants. And not all of them are similar. Something else that I noticed is that immigrants and second gen kids of immigrants have very Different views of American identity. While immigrants consider themselves most of the time as outsiders, insiders, that's what I do. I see myself as an outsider as well as an insider, and I'm pretty comfortable with that. My kids, they are navigating a space where they don't know how to approach their identity because they are part of the, their heritage. So their identity has Pakistani heritage as one dimension. But then they are also American, as American as can be, right? How do they navigate those spaces, especially immigrants who are non-white and their kids? How do they view their space or their place in America? And how Mm -hmm. are they still othered despite the fact that they are born and raised here? Um, So a lot of complexity when it comes to approaching different identities within the broader ecosystem of immigration and its intersectionality with race and identity.
0: Sadie, I want to shift into your newest podcast. We are big fans. Um, so Invisible Hate. Um, so this is a podcast about actual um, crimes that occur mostly within the U.S. So in your own words, give us a little bit more information around like what constitutes as a hate crime. What are some of the common themes you're hearing or, or you know, from investi- doing kind of this investigation into some of the hate crimes that you've
1: um, and why are you drawn to this right? so if you listen to a couple of these episodes i'm uh I'm not a big murder person like i'm not uh I, I'm, <laughs> I'm against murder uh that's just a just a you know stand that I've taken personally and so what is uh <laughs> I am too if we're gonna <laughs> yeah no it's so it's yeah. but it's just a very it's it's obviously very intense and and the some of the stories that you tell are very intense and so what what drew you to that and then and then again, um you know, what tells a little bit more about hate crimes.
4: The podcast started as a extension of two media companies coming together and their missions. So it's a joint production between Refilion and Immigrantly. Refilion uh, focused on amplifying Muslim voices in America, Immigrantly focused on creating nuanced narratives around Diverse identities in America. And our goal through this podcast was to bring to light conversations or crimes that were either ignored by mainstream media or were presented in a very one-dimensional, exploitative form. So that was the basic idea. I am a huge true crime podcast listener, so please don't judge me on that. No judgment. Uh, And I do have a few favorites, but to be honest, what I felt was, despite the fact I enjoy listening to true crime, I felt there was this commercialized, exploitative factor that I just felt needed to be corrected, and I think... Invisible hate is an answer to that. It's a course-correct kind of thing for um, mainstream true crime genre. So that's how we came about. In terms of stories, we are telling stories about all different sorts of hate crimes. So I'll go back to the definition of hate crime, right? So hate crime is a criminal offense that's perpetrated against an individual or a group based on their perceived identity, right? So race, religion, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability. Um, That's basic idea of hate crime. Hate crime can take different forms, right? It can be verbal harassment. It can be violent assault, physical assault, or it can be something, you know, vandalism against an object rather than a human or a person. Yeah, I guess that's the basic crux of it. Now, just an FII, I am not an expert on on criminology. Whatever discussions Asad and I, my co-host, have are based on the facts and the evidence that we have, and then based on our own lived experiences, right? And I go back to Being a Muslim in America, I've faced so many microaggressions and I've seen people around me who've either been hate-crimed or have faced microaggressions. My own daughter, she was only 11 when she was called the Queen of Taliban and she didn't even know what that Mm -hmm. meant Mm -hmm. just because her parents are from Pakistan. So it is also an extension of our lived experiences. We are lucky to not have been hate-crimed, but Mm. we've seen and been targeted um, in form of microaggressions, which is a form of verbal harassment and can constitute as hate crime, right?
1: Let's take a short break. Stay with us on this special episode of Inclusive Collective. Thanks again to our highlighted guests on today's show. Check out all the great content being produced by Asit Butts, Rafalia Media at rafilia.com. You can also stream films from the global south on Mika Cooper Edwards, Salil so dot com. And be sure to download and listen to Sadia Khan's Immigrantly and Invisible Hate podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, thanks to my co host, Nadia Butt. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us. Inclusive Collective is a production of Rafilion Media. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your feedback at Inclusive Collective at Rafilion dot com. You can also find us. LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate and subscribe and tell your friends and wherever you get your podcast. It could be Apple, it could be Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to tune in. We'll be back next week with more Inclusive Collective. Take care, everyone.